Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the show ACO Watch, a midweek review with Jeffrey L. Cohen. I'm Greg Masters, your host and publisher of the blog ACOWatch.com, also known on Twitter as Two Health Guru. We are broadcasting today from, I should say, very sunny San Diego, California, on March the 30th, 2011. And this is the 17th segment in our weekly series that monitors and informs the emerging accountable care organization industry. So I'm delighted today, my special guest commentator, who I have had on this program once before and actually rebroadcasted that segment, which was very popular as far as audience reception, is Jeffrey L. Cohen, Esquire. With over 20 years of health law experience, Jeff is board certified by the Florida Bar as a specialist in healthcare law and is a self-described and, shall I say, well-earned frustrated comedian, quote-unquote. As founder of the Florida Healthcare Law Firm, he can be reached at jcohen at floridahealthcarelawfirm, all one word, dot com. In this broadcast, we'll discuss the ACO industry in general and more particularly his recent blog post, quote, IPAs again, and I can direct you to acowatch.com for that comment. Jeff, get straight to the point on the potential of there's value in them hills if only IPAs morph into the very entities that the ACO conversation seems to be primarily preoccupied with. Keep Thanks, Greg. So, Jeff, yeah, welcome. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> All right, so now, Jeff, you're in Florida. It, yes, and it's sunny over here, too. Sunny Florida, sunny California. Yeah. Okay, good. So let's talk about IPAs again. What was the motivation behind this post? Well, you know, I, I, I had a telephone conference earlier this week with a group of primary care physicians, and when we were talking about their who are well out of the gate in terms of their organizational efforts, which is uh, surprising to me because it looks to me that all of the activity is really among hospitals and specialist groups. But I spoke with these gentlemen, and it was very clear to me that, that what they're looking at and what they're engaged in is essentially a more mature version of the IPAs of the 90s. And it really struck home that IPAs in a more mature version uh, that has real um, cost control and real quality measurement and control um, that's going to accomplish the core objectives of ACOs are probably the most accessible way for physicians to organize and uh, be very effective in this era of healthcare reform. So in in that context, let's contrast then and now, and let's also get into essentially a warning about stay away from a quote one size fits all solution. What does that mean? Yeah, the you know the 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 models out there uh, right now that are most popular are really two. Number one, build a huge specialty practice, grow it, or number two join in some way with a hospital system that's taking the lead on ACO development. Those seem to be the two kinds of shoes, if you will, that's out there for people to stick their feet in. And it is, in my experience, particularly in Florida, it's leaving a huge amount of physicians out of the game and really alienating them because neither of those things are accessible or desirable 
to most of the physicians and medical practices that we encounter here. So, so sifting through this thunderous noise, distill it out. What, what are the key? What are the key? Uh, what are the key themes here to do it right or walk the talk? Yeah, you got. If anything that they're going to do has to bring costs down and bring quality up, bottom line, and the form of it is has really, in my experience, been driven by consultants uh, more than it has been based on a needs analysis of the physicians and medical practices. And when I look at cost and access and things like that, affordability, um, IPA is just something that's been tremendously overlooked. I think in part because the developmental aspect of it, forming one of those things, really isn't hugely expensive. The operations part of it, it's a little daunting. So what's different now? Why would there be a receptivity now that this could be successful, whereas perhaps in the past it it, it wasn't? You know, the, the ones of the 90s, the IPAs of the 90s, really arose in an era when the primary incentive seemed to be let's aggregate healthcare insurance dollars so that we could skim off the top and give as little as we have to to physicians that are providing the care. There wasn't a real handle at that time on managing cost or managing quality, uh, reducing cost or improving quality. And today, anything that's, that doesn't effectuate those two ends isn't going to have a future. And I think an IPA that borrows from the themes of the past uh, but applies the requirements of today, those two core requirements, is going to be an emerging vehicle I think we're going to see a lot of. So here's what comes up for me. There's such a generational uh, issue here that, that it's, it's, I have to remind myself that the new generations of, of docs who are so willing to embrace the technology, perhaps a group practice culture, maybe not this compulsion to be a solo independent practitioner per se, these men and women don't even know about IPAs or PHOs. Yeah. <laughs> these, these things all preceded their consciousness as a physician in this culture. Yeah. So, it, so, it, it reminds me a little bit of that scene in The Matrix where where the people are kind of plugged in, in in tubes and they're not even aware that they're plugged in. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so walk us through, what's an IPA? An IPA is essentially a contracting vehicle, an entity that allows physicians in disparate practices, including competing physicians, to contract with managed care. That's it. It's a contracting entity. But the IPA of today that I envision that will have some legs is an IPA that really has a handle on costs, can manage risk-based compensation, and can, um, and can lean on its members to ensure both quality and cost effectiveness. So when you so it's a it's a it's a legal organization. That's right. I as an individual physician become a participating member, or do I own a piece of it? You know, what's my relationship to the entity? Yeah, they typically have a not-for-profit model. They're not necessarily tax exempt, but there really isn't typically, at least historically, there hasn't been any real value in owning an IPA, 
the real value has been in delivering the uh, the healthcare product in a unique way. So it's typically a not-for-profit entity, whether it's an LLC or an Inc. or what have you, is going to depend in part on state law. It, its members, if you will, or its owners, if you want to go a proprietary way, are physicians. And it is operated by somebody with some sophisticated IT and operational expertise. Such as a management company, which it may own and operate or contract with. That's right. And conceivably, it could be uh, solely a physician uh, entity, or it might could it could it involve an institutional partner? It can, yeah. It, I mean, you know, it depends on the mindset, of course, of the institutional partner, because uh, we have really two kinds of institutional partners in Florida. One is kind of a command and control model. Uh, and they're not likely to step up. Those hospital systems are not interested in collaboration. They're interested in taking leadership position and uh, and stepping into the ACO future. But in some in some minor instances, at least in Florida, we find that physicians and hospitals have remarkably collaborative relationships, which is wonderful because hospitals clearly have some expertise that physicians just don't have. Um, operations, uh, getting and having enough money to run the thing, uh, IT uh, management, and all of those components uh, that really focus on the functionality of the entity. Hospitals are great at that. Okay, so then with that as an introduction, going back to this idea of of managing costs, we're not just talking about, for instance, if I'm a primary care physician, we're not talking about the rates I offer to the IPA necessarily that they take to market. We're talking about the, the especially from an ACO perspective, to the extent this is, a, I, I referred to it earlier as a IPA 2.0 is ACO 1.0, to the extent that the IPA is, is really kind of um, uh Condition precedent or enabling pathways to an ACO. What what do you mean by managing to that they must function to reduce costs and improve quality? What what is that all about? You know, borrowing from the past, the IPAs in the '90s were basically a, co a collection of physicians who really had no stake in the entity. They didn't take any a real active role. They didn't do anything other than hope that patients kept coming and reimbursement would come in whatever the negotiated manner it came. Now, for for that organization to uh, survive and grow, they have to be very interested in and very um, engaged in ensuring quality metrics are met, ensuring financial outcomes are met. The IPA of yesterday didn't require any physician to talk to any other physician member. The IPA of today is going to require all the physicians to frequently collaborate, make sure they're moving in the same direction, make sure that cost cost effectiveness is a topic of conversation, and that their behaviors are brought into line through educational efforts. That's going to be a hugely different IPA than we've seen in the past. Okay. So, um, and the reasons you think 
it might succeed now versus then is is why. Yeah. Well, you know, there wasn't any real, there really wasn't any kind of urgency to it uh, in the 90s. It was an opportunity for entrepreneurs. It was an opportunity. And and it, at worst, it was a defensive measure by frightened physicians who thought, well, if we form this thing, at least we won't get left out. The markets shifted, and even if the law is ultimately found to be unconstitutional, the market's already out, and it's already changed, and it's going to be, uh, it's going to have these two core components of cost reduction and quality improvement or demonstration, and that's where the real opportunity lies. You know, in the old model, the model that's dominant today is. Hey, you know, I, I get paid based on how much I do and how much I do it, and uh, how much how expensive it costs me. Because the more it is to me, then the more I'm going to get paid for it. The model of the future is going to involve, to some extent, at least a, a serious opportunity for people to win economically, not based on utilization, but ba- based on. Um, uh, appropriate utilization, cost-effective utilization, and quality outcomes. So let me let me add to that because <clears throat> in California, uh, back in the 80s, we had a couple of projects that were uh, led by health plans, uh, and in one particular case, uh, Cigna Health Plan contracted with the Los Angeles County Medical Association, and they formed an entity called Doctors IPA. It was a super IPA, and they went out and did one-off contracting with doctors as opposed to uh, a group or an IPA as an intermediary. So they built this giant super IPA across Los Angeles County dealing with the medical uh, association, and, you know, they, they, they had some success recruiting into them, and they contracted on, on the basis of conversion factors, which equated into a fee schedule. Mm-hmm. And they grew some membership there. But uh, lo and behold, what a surprise. They found out that the, uh, <laughs> the claims experience against the premium income far exceeded <laughs> – <laughs> far, far, they far exceeded the income. So they started doing this thing, and oh, by the way, it was introduced with this thing called a withhold. And a withhold was, well, this is what we're going to pay you, but we're going to hold back a portion of it, ten, fifteen, twenty percent, just in case. <laughs> so over the years, what happened? This model failed miserably. But over the years, what happened was this withhold, which may have started at. 10%, possibly 15, went to 20, 25, 30. Before you knew it, it was this variable withhold to try and achieve sort of equilibrium between claims and and um, and premiums, and it failed. So that that that's that's just one example of what you're talking about: the old way and perhaps the new way. So the new way, presumably enabled by technology that wasn't available then, and the fact that we're almost at 18% of GDP and cratering, if you will, as an employer-sponsored model in this country, is that, you know, this is about to collapse. (laughs) This is perhaps the last hurrah actually for the private sector to make this work. Is that a reasonable context to spin here? Yeah, I do. I think it is because, you know, and and to follow on your comment, you know, the IPAs of yesterday, the primary motivation was the fear of losing. 
the fear of losing the 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 withhold or the fear of losing in some way economically. I think the IPAs of the future will be motivated by what they stand to gain as they shift the financial incentives for proper management. Um, there's a substantial upside, um, you know. It's and, and I see that as a as a shift that is possible and available, and uh, to the extent that they can get excited about um, changing their patterns and behavior, um, I, I think we're going to see some substantial good outcomes in these organizations. So, so talk about before we we get maybe a little bit more into the uh, the, the the umbrella health reform context for this, and perhaps some of your concerns uh, about whether it'll survive these uh, tests, these state-level tests by attorneys generals. Um, what, what is the current state of the law as to an IPA constraints? What, what, it, what must it do to be legal? What, what can, must it stay away from in terms? And then talk about this messenger model. What's that about? Yeah, there's, they basically have two paths they can pursue. One is via a messenger model, in which case the IPA can uh, take fee-for-service income, or something other than a messenger model, which is a risk-based compensation model. So, for example, if they went to a payer and they said, hey, just give us 100% of Medicare, they have to use a messenger to communicate that member by member. Um, The effect of it is that the organization, by using a messenger, ceases to lose any kind of negotiation power because they cannot speak as one collective voice on a fee-for-service type of compensation arrangement. But if you shift the kind of compensation that's payable by the payer to the IPA into a risk-based compensation arrangement, for example, capitation or bundled rate or case rate or uh, disease state comp or um, or fee for service with a huge uh, withhold of at least thirty percent. Um, whatever the FTC is going to bless, because it's not clear to me what the Federal Trade Commission is going to bless today, in light of the ACO hope. But looking at the law as it has been, physicians can either contract on a fee for service basis, in which case their organization has negotiated no negotiation leverage or they can compens- they can contract on with a payer on a risk-based compensation basis in which case they can act and speak as one large organization through the IPA so if there's a safe harbor here if you will it's if for the IPA is risk contracting no worries if the IPA is doing discounted fee for service PPO like contracting then you must act as, in this messenger role which is this sort of uh, you know kind of clumsy intermediary where you're just messaging back and forth between the health plan and the physician there's really no negotiation technically that can, can go on there correct you're right. That's right. And that's a paperwork nightmare of shuffling contracts back and forth and trying to build a physician network. Yep, that's true. And that's why all of the that's why you don't see a whole lot of IPA activity around anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. Now, so as we look at 
moving forward in terms of ACOs and the indicia that we've been led to believe exist, as, as you know, at least as it was written in the Act, uh, I guess we're kind. Of, there's some buzz on the street that uh, as soon as this week we may see uh, AC rules issued in the first round of uh, proposed rulemaking. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. We've been looking forward to it since January. Okay. Now, as the ACO is really a, a, a one of this very larger umbrella law, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, one of the provisions that you mentioned, which which you indicate you don't think is likely to survive, is uh, this insurance mandate thing. Is is that correct? Talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the buzz, the most. Uh, the most talked about buzz is the idea that perhaps this individual mandate that uh, states must require the or the federal government has required uh, all of us to purchase um, health insurance from private businesses that that violates the federal constitutional uh, commerce clause and uh, I find that to be a very appealing argument some judges uh, seem to have, and a couple have have not. A couple have have said, "Well, we we don't really think there is a commerce clause violation." I like the arguments uh, by some constitutional scholars, notably Randy Barnett, who is a Georgetown University law professor, that in fact it's a fatal flaw to the law. So now I'm wondering: is there another way to look at this? Might there be anyone out there with a different point of view? Well, yes, there is. Hello, gentlemen. How are you today? <laughs> well, who's this? Hi, this is David Harlow in Boston. Oh, my God. At Health Blog, David Harlow. <laughs> Whoa. That's right. Popped in here. Well, welcome, David. <laughs> Thank you, Craig. How are you today? Excellent. Excellent. So, David, you've been listening. What, what do you yes, think? Yes, I have. Yeah. Um, there, there, uh, there are a lot of issues on the table, and um, I'd like to address the constitutional issue and then maybe take a step back as well. The, um, from my perspective, the constitutional challenge to national health reform, the question of the Commerce Clause um, that you've just been touching on, uh, I, I don't think that that's a fatal flaw. I, I really don't. There's the Commerce Clause through Supreme Court jurisprudence, has expanded tremendously over the years. Um, in the early days, it was very clearly understood as a very narrow thing. The federal government was established by these 13 original states as a very limited government. And while there are some folks participating in the national discourse today who would like to see the federal government be extremely limited in what it does, the reality is that the federal government is not limited by much at all, and including uh, cost clause jurisprudence as it has evolved. So to suggest that a $2.5 trillion a year sector of the U.S. economy, which moves goods and services across town and cross country, is not interstate commerce, it really strains uh, credulity to my thinking. And again, my view of the jurisprudence as it's evolved over time is that we're at a point where this kind of makes sense. People understand that it makes sense. People understand that the federal government has a lot of skin in the game financially, 
and is, in fact, in a position to regulate in this arena. So for the common man, what, is, what does that mean to me? Uh, the Commerce Clause, the uh, constitutionality, is this really... You know, you're in Massachusetts, a fairly progressive state with respect to uh, uh, innovating in the healthcare space. Um, Jeff's in Florida, maybe a little more, I don't know, reactive, shall we say? <laughs> you bet. Yeah. Does that have anything to do with it? Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe it's in the water up here, but uh, the, our uh, former. Former Republican governor and presidential candidate Mitt Romney is sort of in a bind right now because he's the guy who signed the Massachusetts health reform law that has a mandate in it. And now he is on the spot anytime he's trying to raise money or raise other political capital. He's put on the spot because of his support for this in the past, the state level. And he's trying to distinguish that from his stance on the federal level. And there is a different legal issue, and it is different legally. But as you said, Greg, for the common man, it's the same thing, and he sounds like he's talking about the size of his mouth. It's a difficult position that he's in. And let me add uh, another piece to that for what it's worth. I believe the governor of Florida used to run a company called Columbia HCA. <laughs> Yeah, I seem yeah. to remember that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not such a fan of uh, of, of the expanded role of government in healthcare for some reason. Well, I right. think he cameoed on behalf of a few special interests before. Yeah, right. So, Bill McCollum, when he was running for uh, for governor, he was one of the Republican candidates and was the insurance commissioner in Florida. He was just a re- remarkably outspoken critic. Of the uh, healthcare reform law, so it's it must be in the water, Dave. <laughs> right. <laughs> so where's yeah. where's it going, so, David? Where do you see? So it going? we're tr- so we're trying to solve this problem, and now there's some movement afoot to get this bumped up to the Supreme Court as soon as possible, so we we can just get one single definitive read. Okay. And um, quite frankly, I was looking at this issue. Um, over a year ago before the law was even passed because when when my home state uh, uh, elected Scott Brown into Ted Kennedy's old seat, uh, for a few weeks at least, was that all bets are off. And so there was a lot of thought being given to how far can we go with these ideas even if we don't get the whole health reform law. And the truth is there's a lot that can be done even without the full package of legislation in place. However, the fact that we've gone through this couple-year-long process of reaching some sort of national consensus that allowed the law to go through, and there were a lot of heavy opponents of the law who have now signed on. Now, some of those are signed on because they see a financial um, uh, 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 pot at the end of the rainbow here, even though they were opposed up front. And by those, I'm, I'm thinking primarily of the commercial insurance companies who were looking at, you know, 30 million more new covered lives. Uh, so that maybe changes their tune, which is understandable and uh, nothing wrong with that. I, I think that as a, as a practical matter, 
a lot of work has been done to begin implementing the law and to reverse it at this point would be extremely disruptive. And I think that needs to be taken into account at some sort of real politic level, even though we have this vision of judges judging based on constitutional principles um, divorced from the reality around them. That's not necessarily really the case. And the dislocation that would occur if this law were overturned is just tremendous to state governments, to private industry, to uh, folks in the healthcare industry as well. So I think it would be a, a very bad decision, not only for constitutional reasons, but for general economic reasons. Yeah, and how about just from a sunk cost perspective to think, oh my God, you know, uh, all, all the, the political theater, all, all now the, the retooling to anticipate and operate under this phased implementation of the law. I mean, all of that is just what, just a walk in the park, no problem. We're we're so we're supposed to be a frugal nation, worried about, uh, you know, uh, what we spend money on, and and to uh, I just it to me it seems to be theater of the absurd, and uh, and and I I wonder if there's any compelling logical basis to move forward in this anti unwinded uh, mode. Well, I mean the the uh, what you say is correct. It is political theater. And if you compare the um, the current law with the uh, Republican proposal to reform health care a few years ago, it's very similar. So we're really talking partisan politics more than anything else. It's not there. There are no fundamental. There are no serious fundamental disagreement or, or differences or ways in which the current law is off the reservation where the um, Republican-sponsored bill did not. So it, it is political theater, and the question is, uh, uh, again, about the sunk costs. Now, one interesting issue on the sunk costs front that's come up recently, has gotten more uh, press recently, is the issue of those states like uh, Massachusetts and others around the country that have done something ahead of the federal government to try put a finger in the dike and to uh, extend coverage to more people, whether it's through expanded Medicaid programs, eligibility, or, or, or otherwise. And Massachusetts and other such states are going to have to retool to comply and comport exactly with the detail in the, in the federal law um, for at least a three-year period. And a suggestion has come up, and that's on the table in Congress now, to to uh, hurry up, to short-circuit that three-year period. The idea is basically that everyone needs to comply with the federal law. Each state needs to increase access to health insurance under federal rules. And then three years from now, they could start experimenting. Uh, people who have already started experimenting say, I don't want to have to retool. I want to continue my experiment. It's going pretty well so far. And maybe you can learn something from me, uh, federal government, or maybe you can learn something from me, other state. Um, so that's something that's on the table. And I think that that would be very beneficial to allow experimentation in our uh, 50 laboratories of democracy or whatever we want to call them to uh, to see different approaches 
Uh, Vermont wants to go with uh, single-payer universal coverage. Let them do that. See how it goes. Um, so I would, I would like to see that happen so that we can see a variety of approaches tried out as long as they meet the basic uh, goals of, of health reform, which is universal coverage at a cost no greater than what would otherwise you know, be required under the federal law. Does this Vermont have a shot at it? Well, they're um uh they are going for that. I mean, you know, each state has its own unique situation, so there there are local approaches that make sense, you know, from state to state. Um I think that uh right now I think it'd be a hard sell in Congress to pass this waiver provision, have it come into effect three years early. Um but we'll see. Okay. Yeah, single payer has been uh, on the governor's desk here in California as well. So, you know, I say watch what you pray for to the anti-reform crowd. Uh, Jeff, you hear anything from David you have heartburn with? No, I, I, I think he's dead on in terms of just the experimental nature of this time and the fact that the government and the regulators and the people that work for the government are very outspoken in their support for experimentation and as he said as as long as it meets the central objectives uh of the legislation have at it let's see how it goes let's learn from each other and let's take a step in 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 a better direction so there's lots to be said from the states as living laboratories which i think is a uh a conservative perspective for the most part uh or libertarian one might say um I don't. That remains intact, really, with a waiver option. Whether or not the law remains intact, David, is that correct? Well, if the law if the law goes away, then each state is sort of free to do whatever it wants. Um, right now, there's a law that's coming into effect that's going to require expanded eligibility under state Medicaid rules, et cetera, et cetera, in a very specific kind of way. So um, what people had been doing before this was everyone doing their own thing and getting individual Medicaid waivers from the federal government. Um, The federal health reform law steps in and says, here's the way we're going to do it, folks. And I'd like to see a step back into the, you know, sort of open waiver territory. Okay, so stepping back from then the political umbrella here, Uh, Is it not reasonable to say that other than the ideological think tanks who who presumably have standing in the health reform, the health policy, the health want community per se, the majority of those people say this is about innovation, the law as written encourages innovation, it is the best-in-class innovation that we know about, let's give it time to breathe. Is that not the case? I think that's right. It's um, that's sort of the approach. It's um, you know part of it is the you know paternalism, the inherent paternalism of the federal government, saying we've thought about this and here's how we're going to do it. Um, part of it is uh, sort of fiscal management based. So from a fiscal perspective, federal government says, yeah, we we want to see what you all can do, but first we want you to do it our way. And then we have a cost basis to work off of, 
and then we can figure out how we're going to dole out money um, to let you implement experiments because it's going to be a budget based on uh, the way we thought we were going to do it. Um, so if people start innovating earlier and looking for a handout from the federal government under the tremendously expanded federal participation in Medicaid funding under health reform, it could end up being more expensive for the federal government. So I understand that perspective. Jeff? Yeah, I mean, I, to echo the comment, I, I think that the issue of waivers is, is supremely important here. Otherwise, you really can't adapt and and propose any workable solution because these dynamics tend to be very local, very regional in nature, and uh, the states need that kind of flexibility to react and respond in ways that are meaningful to them rather than uh, trying to be locked into some kind of crystalline structure that is less uh, workable and less effective. And I believe the idea and notion of waivers are, hey, <laughs> you don't like what you see? You know, tell us how you're going to do it. You know, there's some ground rules you have to meet, which are reasonable. Show us. I mean, isn't, didn't I hear that? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And this is, I mean, and this, to bring it back to ACOs specifically, this is something that, that Don Berwick has been beating the drum about all, all along. Um, but unfortunately, he may not be the spokesman for this for much longer. But um, he's been saying, you know, we want to see experimentation. We want these regulations that we've been waiting for now for three, four months to allow a tremendous range of experimentation in the design of ACOs. It doesn't have to be hospital-centric, as many imagined um, up front. And as, as Jeff was saying, it can be physician-led. It can be PCP-led. You can contract for services. You don't have to have everything under one roof. Um, there are a whole variety of ways you can go about doing this. And the important thing is to have the regs be flexible enough to allow for innovation, because that's going to be what it's all about. All of which are in the the you know the, the at least the law we haven't seen the regs yet but all of that permissiveness is in the law as we understand it so really regardless of the outcome of this conversation IPAs are back no yeah no doubt David what do you say about IPAs I mean Massachusetts yeah I see I see um, a whole variety of structures evolving. And Massachusetts, again, you know, a little bit ahead of the curve um, nationally based on what health reform has happened in this state earlier on. But uh, just as an example, um, the the payer-provider connection that we imagine will happen under the shared savings rule for, I, for ACOs has been happening in Massachusetts in particular through uh, uh, what's called the alternative quality contract that's offered by the Massachusetts um, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield um, to providers. And providers who buy into this alternative quality contract are buying in to an association, if you will, and they're buying into budgeted payments with quality kickers, sounds like an ACO, and um, it is open to large multi-specialty physician groups. It is open to 
small groups that can be aggregated, if you will, through the contracting mechanism in sort of a virtual IPA, if you will. So that is very definitely a model that's in the forefront around here, and I would not ex- not at all be surprised to see it expanding and growing. Let me and ask- again, this doesn't have to wait for federal activity. You know, a ton of dollars flow through the Medicare system, but of course, another ton of dollars flow through the commercial insurance system, and that's all uh, uh, addressed by private contracting. And while certainly the structures that come out of the ACO regs will inform what happens in the commercial sectors, as they always do, um, there's a lot of innovation that can be happening on the commercial side. So if, I don't know if this is correct characterization, but Massachusetts may be a little deeper into the rabbit hole here. Uh, I think that's right. Yeah. So would it? And I'm thinking, you know, in terms of Florida and Massachusetts as as you know distinct markets, medical trade service markets per se, that Massachusetts further involved, uh, further evolved in the integration spectrum. Might IPAs be more of the second and third generation variety where they're actually they've morphed into group practices without walls? Or is this primarily like, well, they're ahead of the curve on bundling and linking hospital-based physicians with a budget and stuff like that? Yeah, we've. I mean, we've been through these iterations, you know, whatever it was, 10, 20 years ago. But um, it's coming back in a different way, as Jeff was saying earlier, and it's informed by different um, by different uh, incentives and by different you know, reasons for doing this. Um, Again, Massachusetts has uh, a proposed law on the books filed by the governor that would create an all-payer ACO model of payment, bundled payment, episode of care payment for Massachusetts, moving entirely away from fee-for-service. Wow. And that is phase three of the health reform that started with universal coverage. Okay, so that was envisioned up front. Phase two included authorization of a, a study commission. Um, this was the outcome of that study commission, and now it's filed as legislation. Oh my God, so, are you are you referring to Romney Care? <laughs> well, by the time by the time we're over, it's going to be Patrick Care. I, I guess he'll be running for something too, right? <laughs> Oh, so actually, you know, you know, I, I'm what I'm trying to get at is I think Massachusetts may the, the, the IPA tapestry in Massachusetts may be more of the ilk that Jeff envisions in, in in what he was talking about earlier about if they're back, this is what they need to look like. Is, is that is that fair characterization? I, I think that's right because it's a more evolved. We're not just talking about messenger model, model contracting stuff because we're talking about continuity of care, we're talking about uh, patient-centered medical homes, we're talking about communication, we're talking about real integration within and without the IPA. Um, So maybe it's closer to a group practice without walls rather than sort of just a a contracting model. Yeah, I would dare say that California is perhaps more in line with Massachusetts there. And last week I got to chat with Dr. Wayne Pan from the Santa Clara County IPA. He's their chief medical officer. They own 
they own their MSO, uh, PPS MSI. And uh, so I think California is a little more in line with, with perhaps the Massachusetts experience. And then Florida's doing their thing. So we've got this, uh, you know, this patchwork of maturity around health reform vehicles and where IPAs are. And it's a fascinating conversation. So uh, it, it seems to me Florida's taken the, the kind of Reagan era approach to health care reform that it took that that they took the uh, drug use of just say no. And so we're, we're at the other end of the spectrum. And okay. We're really running to catch up. Sounds like a blog post to me, Jeff. <laughs> well, listen, I want to thank my guest today, Jeffrey Cohen from uh, the Florida healthcare firm, law firm, and David Harlow at Health Blog and DavidHarlow.com. Is that right? Is what, What's your uh, website? Uh, health blog, health, B-L-A-W-G dot com, and harlowgroup.net. Harlowgroup.net. Very good, David. So thanks again for both of you being troopers here doing this on the, at the last minute. And uh, I want to tell everybody that uh, next week uh, we're going to have uh, Med Decision on, and they're going to talk about their software, which is managing the MLR, the medical loss ratio for risk-bearing entities. So thanks again to David and Jeff, and please join us next week. Bye, all. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.